0: Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can read over 4,000 of them at that website. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. There's a link to it there. It is called The Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can listen to film reviews that I do of movies that are currently out in theaters, as well as a really large back catalog of films from the last four years or so. and You can check that out at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second part of a three-part series I call The Queens of Mean, featuring films of the 1980s in which a queen, although in this case today's film will be a princess, is one of the main antagonists of the film. The film I'm going to be reviewing today is called Return to Oz. It came out in 1985. It's a PG-rated film. It does have some scary moments and frightening images. The runtime is an hour and 53 minutes. Feruza Balk is the main star of Dorothy. Gene Marsh, Nicole Williamson, Piper Laurie, Pons Marr, Matt Clark, Michael Sundin, and many others are in the film. The director is Walter Murch, who also co-writes the screenplay, along with Gil Dennis. Now, there have been several attempts over the years to return to Oz since the 1939 MGM classic, The Wizard of Oz. And most of them have been animated features or they had puppets in it, a lot of TV specials and very few attempts to do a big screen release. There was a shoestring budgeted live action attempt, generally disregarded. It was made in 1969 called The Wonderful Land of Oz, but that really failed to gain interest and only really seen today by people who really like some of the worst movies ever made. One 1972 release did feature the voice of Judy Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli, and her frequent on screen partner in films, Mickey Rooney. There was also a 1978 remake of the film with an African American cast based on the Broadway musical adaptation called The Wiz, a film I've seen way too many times. 1985's Return to Oz, though, did mark the first significant live action continuation. Although not officially a sequel, but it was released into theaters, and this time it was by Walt Disney Pictures. Now, the production differed significantly from the 1939 film. Return to Oz is not a musical. It's also very dark in tone, to the point where a lot of people might consider this to be a horror movie for kids. Nine months after her Oz experience, Dorothy, in this film, wants to return to check in with her friends in Oz. Her Aunt Em thinks Dorothy is somehow mentally ill. She seeks treatment from an experimental clinic that happens to be using electroshock therapy to treat maladies of the mind. And so Dorothy is taken to this eerie clinic that's run by this seemingly uncaring Dr. Worley, played by Nicole Williamson, and the stern nurse Wilson, played by Jean Marsh. And during the treatment... There happens to be this mysterious girl that ends up watching over Dorothy. She intervenes during this lightning strike that ends up halting the experiment. And that sends Dorothy escaping. And she ends up down this nearby river, washing ashore in the land of Oz again. Except the yellow brick road she finds is demolished. When she follows the demolished road, she ends up at Emerald City, which is in ruins, and its inhabitants, including all of her old friends, have been turned to stone by the Mad Gnome King, except for the Scarecrow, who ran Emerald City in her absence, he's been imprisoned by that Gnome King, along with her hen, Belina, a broomstick figure with a pumpkin for her head named, obviously, Jack Pumpkinhead a robotic soldier named TikTok and a flying beast of burden named The Gump. It's up to Dorothy to stop the Mad Gnome King and the evil Princess Mombi, who is also played by Dean Marsh, from destroying the Oz that she knew once and for all. Now, the origin of Return to Oz started back in 1980. The old guard at Disney were seeking to corral young and talented directors. They asked George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola to produce films for their struggling studio, they ended up declining because they wanted full creative control. But in the asking, they recommended that Disney check out Oscar-winning sound and film editor Walter Murch as an untapped talent who wanted to direct. Merch worked for Lucas on some of his early films, THX 1138, Merch co-wrote that when he was at USC Film School years before and American Graffiti he worked on Coppola, he worked by editing The Godfather and The Conversation and Apocalypse Now and even helping with the scripts for those last two films. Merch, he was an acclaimed sound and film editor by trade, but he was approached by Disney to direct and asked if he had a project in mind that the studio could sell. A Merch's response was He wanted to continue the L. Frank Baum Oz stories. Beyond the 1939 film, he had 13 other books that he wrote, and he wanted to delve into those as possible material. He read those books at an early age, and he wondered for many years why no one had bothered to continue making more of them into movies. As the popularization of films by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg suggested there was this return to the wonder and imagination and spectacle of Hollywood's yesteryear, and Merch felt that these books of his youth should be able to entertain the kids of contemporary times. It just so happened that Disney owned the rights to all of those Oz books beyond the first one, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and they've owned them since 1954, but they really didn't do a lot with them. They had originally planned to use them for a TV show, and then they ended up trying to make one into a musical production featuring the Mouseketeers, and they got far into it, but it never quite materialized because there was an exorbitant cost involved in seeing that come to life. They were very keen on Merch's idea because Baum's books were soon about five years away from lapsing into the public domain. So they wanted to get this out there while they still had the rights. Disney needed permission from MGM to utilize anything that deviated from the books, namely the ruby slippers. They were silver shoes in the original books, and they paid MGM quite well for the use of ruby slippers to tie the films somewhat together. The framing device of Dorothy on her farm with her family in Kansas, that was something that they did for the original film. They would do that again here. Dorothy remains a brunette to stay consistent with the look of Judy Garland. Judy Garland had actually was going to wear a blonde wig for (laughs) The Wizard of Oz, but they ended up thinking that she looked better with her original look. In the book, Dorothy does have blonde locks. Now, Gary Kurtz, he was the producer for George Lucas on films like Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. He ended up coordinating with Merch to help develop this project. After rereading all of Baum's Oz books again, Merch set about adapting the second, called The Magical Land of Oz, and the third book, Ozma of Oz, along with some elements from other books, including especially the eighth book, TikTok of Oz. And he put in a lot of cameos from characters that appear in some of the other books. Artistic liberties he took in combining the two books into a single seamless story. The Gene Marsh character of Princess Mombi was a composite of two characters from the separate books. The Evil Witch Mombi from Land of Oz and Prince Languidir from Ozma of Oz. Maggie Smith happened to be Maslancy's choice to play Mombi, but she was not interested. Mary Steenberg and Derry Garr, Louise Fletcher are all people that were rumored to be considered at that time. Christopher Lloyd and Tim Curry and Leo McKern were also rumored to play the Gnome King, but that ended up going to Nicole Williamson. Disney suggested using some of their players like Dick Van Dyke to voice Jack Pumpkinhead or Don Knotts for Bellina, but those were supposedly nixed because cost-cutting measures had to be implemented sometime later, and they just didn't want to pay the money. There is one other book that's not often talked about that influenced the framing scenes of the Gale family life in Kansas. During the period in which the screenplay was written, co-writer Gil Dennis brought in elements of a book that he had read called Wisconsin Death Trip. It's a 1972 nonfiction book that uses period photographs and news clippings depicting the harsh life for Midwestern farm families in the late 19th century, just toward the turn of the 20th century. Because this was also the setting for Return to Oz, Merch ended up wanting to depict the realism of an unhappy life on the farm in Kansas. The crops would not grow. The uncle has a broken leg, he can't work, and They are on the verge of losing their farm. And subsequently, the family has very little tolerance for Dorothy babbling about this magical and wondrous fantasy land, distracting all of them from doing the necessary work to keep from losing everything that they own. Murch also used elements of Willa Cather's 1918 work My Antonia for some of those farm sequences as well. The people who run the clinic and Dorothy's shock therapy were also invented for this film to suggest that this trip to Oz might be another one of these fever dreams of Dorothy's making based on whatever she sees around her in real life. The Gnome King's nature changed from this smallish and comical elf-like man from the books to now this fierce and formidable giant who blends in with the mountains around him. At one point, Disney wanted to avoid all sequel claims. They wanted to just simply name the film Oz to avoid that confusion, feeling that the more comparisons that are invited, the more expectations of this being a continuation of everything from the first movie, that was going to govern the minds of many viewers. But they ended up coming back to it for financial reasons. There was a lot of upheaval at Disney. A lot of different people were brought in. They felt that they could ride the coattails of The Wizard of Oz, even if in the end it was going to be a much different film. Further changes, TikTok and Jack Pumpkinhead, they were from separate books. They were not actually in the same books together, but Merch felt that they would make for interesting foils if they were on the same team, so he included them together here. However, the reason why they didn't make this a musical, musicals were not in vogue in the early 1980s per se especially ones that, like the original film, dabbled into vaudeville or the stage musicals. But films like the Indiana Jones series and Star Wars were very popular, so they decided to forego song and dance numbers to make this more of an adventure film. They kind of dubbed this Raiders of the Lost Oz. They brought in the production designer for Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark, a man named Norman Reynolds, to give the film that polish that they were looking for. Gone was that razzle-dazzle of the 1979 extravaganza. This adventure plays much more realistic in its fashion. It does have a lot of fantasy elements to it, but they are very realistically portrayed. Reynolds had vivid design concepts in mind. He wanted to add Art Nouveau influences into the sets, into the costume work, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion... They were all peripheral players by this point, and their design does not resemble the film version of The Wizard of Oz. Instead, Merch wanted them to emulate John R. Neal's original illustrations that were done for the bomb books. Now, Gary Kurtz envisioned a visual spectacle here. He wanted to hire teams of artists and technical wizards to construct the elaborate sets, the costume designs. A lot of those craftspeople came fresh from the set of The Dark Crystal, which Kurtz also produced. They utilized life-size puppets controlled by technicians and animatronics to represent most of these fantastical characters, while the dialogue for them would end up getting done with voice talent. Claymation was going to be used here through the use of stop-motion techniques by Will Vinton, and would also be used to handle some of the more transformative visual effects of the Gnome King. The design work here was very elaborate and very time-consuming. It required weeks of work for each particular character. The Gump, which is essentially this elk or moose head hunter's trophy mounted on sofas that used palm frond wings to fly necessitated the work of six technicians working in a choreographed fashion to make come alive. The chicken, Bellina, proved to be one of the most challenging to produce. She required over a hundred moving parts within her walnut-sized head, and there were several of these hens that had to be constructed to be shot from whatever angle that they wanted to go for for each scene. TikTok, the pot-bellied mechanical man, it took nine months of work to get up to Merch's specifications. And when TikTok walked, there was this gymnast, Michael Sundin. He wore goggles and an oxygen mask was placed inside for him to keep from passing out. His arms were crossed and he was walking backwards within the suit, listening to two headsets for his direction and watching this two-inch view screen upside down from between his legs. He was stooped over within that costume. The longest that Sundid could endure remaining inside was under 12 minutes. Usually he was only in there for three or four minutes before he had to get out and receive intensive massage in between takes to keep him loose. For the wheel men, they wanted to also get acrobats, but they could not support their own weight of their bodies for very long while on these wheels. Burly men who played apes for Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, they were brought in due to their arm strength that they required to sustain their balance on top of these wheels for long periods. The exception was the wheeler leader. He was played by Pons Mar. He was a mime from Northern California who was originally meant here to serve as the movement coordinator for the film. He remained as that, but he also appears in this film as the head wheeler, as well as one of the orderlies at the clinic. Now, getting to the production, which is a very troubled production, six weeks prior to filming at the Elstree Lot in London, There was a team that was under the new Disney president of production, Richard Berger. They ended up halting the production altogether. $6 million had already been spent in pre-production for Return to Oz. And now the cost projections ended up soaring, over $32 million. Disney was in the midst of suffering a lot of setbacks producing lavish live-action films that ended up fizzling at the box office. The Black Hole, Tron, Something Wicked This Way Comes... Disney was in trouble at this period and they would pull out altogether if Gary Kurtz could not scale back the cost significantly. So as a compromise, the Kansas shoot that they had planned was nixed. Additional locale work set in Italy and Spain and Canada and Algeria were also out the door. They would make England have to look like Kansas and they planted thousands of corn stalks into the ground in the Salisbury Plains where Stonehenge is. The rest of the locations ended up moving to sound stages at Elstree Studios. And to absolutely assure budgetary control, Disney ended up bringing in another producer, Paul Maslansky, to take over the reins because of his ability to handle larger productions. Gary Kurtz ended up getting kicked upstairs, so to speak, to an executive producer role to help with merchandising and foreign distribution. Maslansky here chopped down the budget to $25 million to make sure no more than that was spent. He cut out about 20 pages of script, including... Some scenes with the Scarecrow and Tim Man and Lion that were going to give them more of a significant role here. He canceled two of the seven sound stages that they had rented out at Elstree. He chopped out a couple of weeks off of the scheduled shoot. Merch here ended up having a very difficult time working with Meslansky because of his sometimes overbearing manner of asserting creative control. Mastelansky knew he was dealing with a first-time director and felt that he had to work overtime to make sure that he knew what the tasks were at hand. Shooting in England ended up helping the budgetary issues, though. The British pound fluctuated downward in value against the dollar. Not that the Norman Reynolds design sets were cheap, anyway. The cost of Princess Mombi's Salon, the Salon of Mirrors, with its library of interchangeable ladies' heads, cost about $325,000 and required 8,000 square feet of mirrored glass and about 60 craftsmen to construct. $350,000 $350,000 also had been given to Will Vinton to work on the Clay Nation Gnome King character before anything was even filmed, and that caused Maslansky to tell Merch to get rid of it altogether. That stuff was not even going to be in the film if Maslansky had his way. He didn't quite get his wish, though, for reasons I'll get into in a moment. Disney did, at this time, begin a massive search for their Dorothy. They wanted girls of roughly 10 years of age. You know, Judy Garland was 16 when she played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, but they wanted her younger because they wanted to avoid puberty striking during filming and changing the nature of her character. They also wanted an unknown talent, and they would find it eventually, after many hundreds of girls were looked at in nine-year-old Feruza Bach. She was a California-born fourth-grade French immersion student taking classes in Vancouver, British Columbia. She had only one TV special to her credit, so a complete unknown for most people. Strict child laws, though, in England prevented Bach from working more than three and a half hours a day, so they had to be very judicious in when they were going to use her, because this is a film that features her in nearly every scene, then that meant very little wiggle room to complete the picture on schedule if anything should arise. They weren't so lucky, though, with this first-time director, merch. He had problems early on with his assistant director, and that assistant director ended up getting fired after three weeks. They just could not work together, and neither could Merch with his cinematographer, who ended up quitting. In the meantime, they ended up hiring replacements, and then they ended up falling more than a week behind the restrictive schedule, and it was growing. The footage that was being turned in the dailies were not knocking the socks off of Maslansky or anyone else. Merch seemed lost. His enthusiasm for making the film had been fading fast. Five weeks into the production, Merch ended up getting fired once it appeared that he might crack from under the pressure. The straw on the camel's back, he ended up freezing on the set. He was unable to say the word cut. After shooting one of the scenes, he sank down into his chair and admitted he just could not do it anymore. Merch ended up getting hurt by being fired, but he did also feel a big sense of relief, knowing his misery that was caused by a lot of self-doubt and this production slipping out of his control had finally come to an end. Although only for about two days. When word got out of Murch's firing, Berger received a flood of phone calls from agents from all these other directors looking to get them on board. But in the meantime, knowing that his friend was struggling, George Lucas, he picked up the phone. He ended up calling Berger at his hotel at three in the morning, telling him he was making a big mistake. Berger felt justified in his decision, feeling that this was a financial decision and it needed to be done to save millions for the studio. Lucas called again. He encouraged Berger merch just needed a little bit more confidence and he would deliver and what sealed the deal for george lucas is that he told him any other director coming in at this point was only going to make everything worse from a budget and schedule perspective hiring a director would end up requiring shutting down the production for at least a month to get this director up to speed and if this were a good director they would also want the script revised and a lot of the roles recast further causing delays and expense lucas ended up flying in from tokyo almost immediately the first of several visits that he made to get the project back on track. He vouched for Merch. He told Berger that what Merch had shot thus far was actually wonderful and that no one could get the film completed in the 16 weeks that he was allotted, not even an experienced filmmaker like Lucas. He argued that it at least needed two more weeks and that Merch should be given all of the space he needs to complete his vision. Francis Ford Coppola, he also came in from New York for a couple of days to look over things and to give assurances and friendly advice on how Merch should proceed. Steven Spielberg, Carol Ballard, who Merch assisted with the Black Stallion script, uncredited. Director Phil Kaufman, all of these guys came in to provide moral support. Now, Merch ended up catching a big breather. When Meslansky's Police Academy film that he had produced proved to be a huge hit, and that caused Meslansky to leave the set to get Police Academy 2 off the ground, and Merch ended up feeling a lot more free to do what he wanted. New Disney execs were on board: Michael Eisner, Frank Wills, Jeffrey Katzenberg. They went to George Lucas's home to screen a rough cut without the claymation sequences. They were not entirely sure what to actually make of it without those sequences several months later they screened a cut with the claymation placed in a much more polished cut and they ended up loving what they were seeing now one major problem still there was this misguided marketing campaign that suggested to audiences that Return to Oz is a continuation from The Wizard of Oz, and that ended up confusing a lot of the public and gave everyone a lot of false expectations. Critics in particular, they were unable to separate Return to Oz from the 1939 original, and they ended up questioning at this point who it was actually for. Adults who grew up watching The Wizard of Oz, they were beyond such fanciful stories like this, and they would be very confused by the tone changing, and kids would end up being disturbed at the grim and frightening tone upending a movie that they probably were still watching and cherishing at the time now budgeted at 25 million dollars return to oz still failed miserably at the box office it debuted at number eight in the box office in its initial week of release and altogether it earned only 11 million dollars in its run Disney's merchandising opportunities further cut into the potential profits. MGM held the rights to the Oz characters as they appeared in the 1939 film. Those likenesses were very well known. The public accepted them as the representations. representation, so people were not going to buy a lot of toys based on Oz that were not part of that original 1939 look and feel. Maslansky, even after the box office failure, he was not dismayed. He thought Return to Oz could actually become a classic kids' film, like its predecessor. The original Wizard of Oz, even though it's considered this monumental hit today, it actually was a financial failure. When it was released, it had a ton of production problems to go along with it. Maslansky felt new generations would grow up watching this very different take without those lofty, lifelong expectations that it would continue the style of the MGM film. It didn't quite happen that way. The film is more of a cult favorite than an all-time classic. To this day, a lot of people do really love this film, but it continues to fail to find that kind of mainstream appeal that the original film was able to garner over time. Now, some cite the nightmarish tone as an issue for people embracing it, but The Wizard of Oz was also a very dark and scary film, if you want to look at it. it. was tempered by singing and dancing and comedy, though. Pre-Knowledge has us viewers subconsciously expecting the kind of comical and music relief that never really comes in this film, so it's hard to divorce the expectations because the 1939 film and its characters are so ingrained in our psyche as well as in our popular culture, that we can't stop thinking about it. So try as you might to separate it. You really just can't help but be reminded when you first meet Dorothy and she kind of looks like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. We see her old friends. They don't quite look the same. We see the ruby red slippers. You know, it is kind of a continuation here. And the title itself suggests a sequel. It's called Return to Oz, probably for a reason. And that remembrance of the original film is probably why Return to Oz seems to be missing several beats for many viewers. Dorothy's companions are in the periphery, as is Toto, the Munchkins, the Wizard. They're not to be found at all. So what we have in their places are these somewhat sad and morose characters who don't really have a sense of joy or hope, and the overhang of dread is very palpable throughout, particularly because of the setup that suggests the entirety of Dorothy's experience through Oz could be a result of this electroshock therapy session that had gone awry. Now, Return to Oz, I do feel if you view it through the prism of A Child's Nightmare, it ends up working so much better than having expectations of the original film. If you are able to kind of divorce that first film and see this as its standalone film, it actually ends up being quite a bit better in terms of its effectiveness. It's a horror movie posing as an adventure. It's very effective in captivating and unnerving, especially children, and it depicts this world where not all adults can be trusted. If you want to survive, you have to rely on your friends, those who are genuine, even if they are not your kin or these professionals who purport to have your well-being in mind. These are the tales that Baum brought forward, and he was commenting on the world with his skeptical eye, a place where most adults have this angle, and every place is dangerous if you want to remain true of heart. Now, as with the 1939 film, there's a suggestion here that this is all a nightmarish fantasy by Dorothy. So why not play it all as a weird fever dream? The Wheelers are represented by the man who wheeled Dorothy to her experiment. The Gnome King is the uncaring therapist, Dr. Worley. Wicked Mombi is the stern nurse. Jack Pumpkinhead is the jack-o'-lantern in her desolate room. And it's just not a place full of warmth or mirth or revelry. But instead, you know, this is a place that makes you long for the comfort and safety and security of your own home, even a home as depressing as the one that Dorothy came from. Now, viewers who come into Return to Oz with an open mind that this is not a true sequel to The Wizard of Oz in many ways. It can play like one if you wish, but if you put that out of your mind and just take it for what it is, I think you're going to be rewarded with a very vibrant, meticulously skillful, artistically sophisticated and very inventive take on L. Frank Baum's stories that are much more in keeping with the nature of the books than they are the 1939 film. And furthermore, if you enjoy other children's quest films of the 1980s that have this downbeat melancholy subtext, I'm thinking of films like Labyrinth and Legend and The Dark Crystal, if you like those movies, I think Return to Oz definitely should merit your attention. If you take it on that level, I think you will get much more mileage out of Return to Oz. I think this is actually a pretty good movie, enough to give it three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means I do recommend going out of your way to see it, if this at all sounds of appeal to you. It's really compelling, even with that downbeat nature, and if I take this as a children's horror film, I do think it stands up as one of the best that I've seen from the 1980s. Interestingly, Walter Murch, kind of a a lost a tour of a sort. This was his only feature film as a director, and the only credit for that role, other than to direct an episode of The Clone Wars for George Lucas in 2011. So. It would have been nice to see more of his work, but unfortunately, it did not come to pass. This was his one and only attempt. And unfortunately, he did not have a very good time doing it. But still, I do think what he turned in was pretty phenomenal in many respects. So thanks so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on Return to Oz and you want to impart them to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. As far as what I'm going to be doing next week, I'm going to go back just a couple of more years. 1983, there was a film that was done by Ralph Bakshi, an animated feature. Ralph Bakshi and Frank Frazetta, a film called Fire and Ice. And that will be the film I cover for next week's episode. So check that out if you haven't seen it for my review on the next episode. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.